This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the beehive. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. After what seems like an awfully long and tiresome election campaign, the end is nearly there. NBR political editor Brent Edwards joins me. And Brent, how are you feeling? Are you tired? Well, I think like a lot of people, you're probably a little bit sick and tired of the campaigning. It does seem to have been going on forever. And, you know, I mean, in part, I think it's because now that early voting is such a fixture of campaigns, you know, early voting starts almost two weeks before election day. Therefore, the traditional four or five week campaign starts four or five weeks before early voting. And then you've still got another couple of weeks to go until um, election day. So I certainly think that um, the parties and the candidates have probably just about had enough, just as I think probably voters have and, you know, those who are going to vote, I think probably just eager to vote. Is it fair to say that the campaign hasn't been characterised by any great visionary or revolutionary sort of policy? Look, I think, you know, it's had a sense that it's been a little bit humdrum that, you know, the yeah, I mean... That particularly from the two major parties, because I, I think you could argue that the minor parties, whether you agree with their policies or not, or, or not, if you look at ACT or if you look at the Green Party or Party Māori, they've all got quite bold policies. I mean, in fact, radical policies to their opponents who, you know, look at it with horror. But um, for both the major parties, it's it's not that massive sort of difference. And I think it's been driven a lot by the cost of living crisis. So they've really been focusing on, you know, how can they address cost of living issues? And now that's an immediate concern for people. So a lot of the focus is on or what can be done in the immediate term to try and relieve those um, pressures on households that are having to deal with um, rising inflation. And so I think that's probably driven a lot of it. Obviously, you're coming out of ongoing out of COVID. We've had the cyclones and what have you. And for for the Labor government, I guess for Labor that's been in government for six years, they're very very defensive about their record. And so, and in a sense, they've been attacked constantly by National about that. But then, in response through the campaign, they've spent a lot of time attacking National over its policy prescription. Do you think any of that tit for tat kind of you know accusations at each other about lying? Do you think any of that's landing? Well, yeah. I mean, I don't think the accusations around lying are that helpful. But I do think that both parties should actually attack one another's policies because elections are meant to be about a contest of ideas, so they should be contested. Um, is it impacting? I think the, there's been a, a poll out, um, the Guardian Essential poll out uh, this week, which seems to suggest that Labor's strategy has perhaps had a little bit more impact than that. You know, supposedly 37% of respondents said it had, you know, they ended up having a more negative view about National and National's leader, Christopher Luxon, whereas only 25% said they had a more negative view about uh, Chris Hipkins and Labor. So in terms of both parties attacking one another, if those poll results are right, then maybe Labor's um, tactic strategy has worked a bit better than National's. Even though there hasn't been any sort of great vision from, from either of the main parties, the differences between them still matter, though, don't they? How, how do you see that going into Saturday? Yeah, look, I mean, I, you know, you do hear people say, oh, there's no difference whether you vote for one or the other, you know. But, but in fact, but you're right, there are still differences. They may be nuanced, but 
for people, you know, it will make a difference to their lives, whatever government is formed. If it's a national act, particularly if it's a national act government rather than a Labour, Greens to Party Māori government, um, there'll be quite relatively significant differences in terms around tax, around um, um, benefits, they'll raise the age of super, those sorts of things. I mean, they'll, they'll make quite significant differences to some people's lives. Um, might not be so different, perhaps, if New Zealand First is involved, because it will presumably act as a bit of a handbrake on some of um, what it sees as more right-wing policies. But, yeah, I mean, there will be differences depending on which parties form the next government. I mean, obviously, looking at the polls, it's more likely you'll see a national-led government than you'll see a Labour-led government. But um, while, you know, you might not see these massive, massive differences, if you like, um, the differences are discernible enough that um, it will make a difference. And I think, you know, voters are probably still weighing that up. We haven't seen as many people vote early yet as happened at the last election. So either that means more people are perhaps disinterested and might not vote or they're waiting, they're still uh, deciding how to cast their vote. Political editor Brent Edwards, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Beehive Banter. I'm back, refreshed, after checking out just how cheap fruit and veggies are across the ditch on your behalf. Speaking of half, yep, that's right, about half the price we pay. Tomatoes, $3 a kg. Asparagus, $1.50 a bunch. (laughs) But I digress. Let's move away from the cost of living and move to our favourite subject. What Brent Edwards thinks about the questions I'm about to ask. So... Here we are, election week, where one of the only questions left is, have you voted yet, or are you waiting until Saturday, Brent Edwards? Well, I haven't voted yet. I'm not quite sure when I will, so... Right, uh, let me ask you this. (laughs) Do we actually care about any policy, any debate, any argument anymore? Are we over it? Uh, I I think a lot of people are over it, but at the same time, time, if you're talking about early voting, far fewer people have voted early so far than did in 2020, which indicates, you know, one of two things, either people are just completely turned off and they're not going to vote, so that the voting turnout might be low, or they're waiting. They haven't made up their minds, they're still thinking about it. Or the last election was different from every other election. Well, that's right. I mean, it was done in COVID too, so I think a lot of people got in and voted while they thought it was safe. So, yeah, can't yet tell how how much the turnout will be, but but it is interesting. I mean, ACT jumped on those numbers yesterday to say, oh, your vote will count for even more because fewer people are voting, so, yeah. All right, so the final polls, yes. A left surge, yes. ACT peaked too early, and yes... Winston, yet again. New sub poll, Nats down, Greens up, all the cards with Winston. TVNZ poll, Winston can basically pick either side. Will Hipkins call him? Um, yeah. Look, given everything that Chris Hipkins has said about that, and as recently as yesterday, he said again, called Peter's out and the other parties out for what he called was race baiting and that he would never sit around a cabinet table with a party who had um, candidates who basically made racist attacks, repeated again that he would not deal with Peter's. But go back to the he would never sit around the cabinet table. Is it possible 
he might sit around a cabinet table without New Zealand First there, but have New Zealand First as support party with ministers outside cabinet. I mean, look, very unlikely given the strength of his denunciation of New Zealand First. I mean, let's say that Luxon said he couldn't form a government, but Hipkins could if he picked up the phone. Are you telling me he'd rather then well, be in the position of saying we've got to go back to the polls after saying he wouldn't make people go back to well, the polls. Well, that, 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 that is an, a really, I mean, interesting, you know, proposition because, for instance, if the result show, you know, comes out where, where National wins most votes of any party, which clearly on the polls, yeah. even though there's been some shifts in the polls, is the, is the likely outcome. But then in negotiations feels they can't form a government with New Zealand first. And yep. so therefore basically tells the Governor-General, I yep. can't form a government. Yep. Well, the Governor-General will then go to Chris Hipkins and say, well, can you form a government? And effectively ask him to form a government. So on that basis, I think he'd be duty-bound to actually attempt it. So you're right. At that point, he probably would have to ring Peter and say, look... And because the one thing... Well, all, all well, the, all well the maybe parties, he might get someone to ring on his behalf. Well, well, maybe, but all the parties need to know <laughs> is the voters have voted. They then expect the parties to take that result and produce a government. They can't come back to the voters and say, oh, we don't like what you gave us, have another go. By the way, speaking of those phone calls, here's the correct thing that I think the advice that Luxon should have been given to say when press asked, uh, will, you, will you rule Winston in or out? He should have said these words... I will see which way the voting public want me to go. If they give Winston the mandate, that means they wish me to call him. If he'd said that, well, it might have been... No, that's uh, not what he... No, no. No, but it's still opening that... No. I mean, if you blame way, the public, yeah. if you say, depending what the voting public decide, that will be them telling me to call him or not. Yeah, a lot, a lot of people are saying, because of what um, Christopher Luxon said a couple of weeks ago, then they look at, oh, look at how the support of New Zealand First has sort of come up since then. But as we've talked about before... Back in June, as early as June, even earlier, we were talking about New Zealand First potentially holding the balance of power. The numbers were already there then when you could see his vote coming up. It wasn't at 5% at that point, but it was rising. So I'm not sure whether Luxon's comments made any difference or not, or whether New Zealand First wasn't. If you talk about a surge, they've had the surge. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting, though. If you remember quite a while ago, I said Seymour blew it when he said he might just give confidence but not supply, mm. right? Which means, you know, the government, uh, if it was under Luxon, would have to go hand in cap every single bit of legislation. I said, that's it, he's blown it. In your opinion, why is ACT dropping, or is that the catalyst? No, I don't think that's the catalyst. I think one of the reasons ACT's support is dropping is New Zealand First is coming up. And New Zealand First is soaking up that grumpy group of people, those who have concerns about vaccine man, all the, all the various people who had been, I think, um, supporting ACT. The one thing I'll say about ACT is, while, while this support has fallen from earlier in the campaign in terms of under the current polling that they've got, they will still end up with a better vote than at the last election. Alright. The Greens are finally resonating, speaking of votes from the last election. The past reminds us what the Greens poll does not always come true. Yeah, it doesn't always come true, but they've certainly had a much better run-up to this election than, say, the previous two elections, and and the polling is stronger. So you'd have yeah, to expect... How much they, of that tax thing went their way? Well, tax the rich bit. Well, I think there's, a, there's certainly a constituency out there yep. for that particular policy. So I think they may well not, po you know, 
the vote may not well not match the poll results, but I think, it, again, it looks as though they will still end up with a better result than they got in 2020. I mean, the one thing that seems to be happening is, and, and this has happened a couple of times through since we've had MMP, the shift is going away from the major parties and the, the, the minor parties are picking up more support. Yeah, they might have lots of seats with no power at all. Yeah, possibly, uh, but I guess, you know, if you're a party, the more seats you have, the better you'll feel. Oh, so they'll feel fine, but they have no power and can't do anything. Well, I guess the frustration for the Green Party has been uh, that, you know, they've never really been, they've never been around the Cabinet table, even when they've had supposed power. So uh, for them, if they have more Green MPs in Parliament, they'll presume, I guess they'll see that as a bit more of a launching pad for the next election, if they're not in government. Now, because the thing is, I suppose we've got to look at it, you know, you've raised the you've raised the prospect of all in the end. Right, they pick up to, that green phone. Pick up the phone. So it's still not out of contention <laughs> that you might have some sort of centre left government. Oh so, no, I thought you meant the Greens calling Luxon. Oh, Greens. Oh. <laughs> no, okay. Well, hey. you know, I mean, in many ways that might be the most you know it, likely it might. outcome you in know? a sense of but. The politics of it make that very... No, I know. Where's the positive election that was promised by both National and Labor? It's been nothing in the past few weeks but attack, attack, attack. Yeah, look, I know it's been attack, 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 but one of the things too is about... This is an election and it's like... Well, it's meant to be a contest of ideas. We can argue about whether the ideas are very good or not from all of the parties. Yep. But it is a contest of ideas, which means you've got to attack the other party's ideas. Don't you? I mean, otherwise, I mean, wh- otherwise you're saying. And I think, from Labor's point of view, obviously, is that they came into the campaign well behind in terms of polls. They had to do something to try and shift the sentiment. So they have obviously gone and focused on undermining some of National's key policies around tax, fiscal. Costing, I just, I just et don't hear them saying, you know, vote for us. Except what I do hear is, don't vote for them. Well, well uh, they are saying vote you for us, but, but they are it. saying if you vote for them, you're going to lose. That's they're sounding their, desperate, both line. of them. Well, they are sounding desperate because there's a lot at stake for both of them. God, did you see that debate, this, one of the several debates, between Nicola Willis and Grant Robertson? You couldn't get all... It's, ugh, I had to turn the TV off. I've never done that before. Anyway... Does the Port Waikato by-election in November complicate anything with regard to seats and numbers? Well, it'll it'll depend on the result <laughs> on you know on the night, won't it? I mean, yeah. what 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 happens? What happens, for instance, if National and Act are one seat short of a majority to yeah. govern just together without yeah. New Zealand First? Yeah. What then? They're guaranteed that seat. When they pretty much, I mean, it's a national. Well, it's it's held, Andrew Bailey. Yeah, national held seat. So you know, imagine they'd win it. So and that under the rules, they'll they'll get added another seat. Yeah. On top of what they're already so they allocated could wait. Under part of it. They could if it's so, if it's one seat, they might not negotiate with well, Winston it, and wait. If the election is really tight, it might be that you wait until the. Would Winston, if things were tight, wait to even start negotiations until after that date? Well, if if that was going yeah. to give National Act a majority, I think he'd want to negotiate before that came in. Because yeah. what what he would do, though, I think, is what he did um, in 2017, is wait until the specials are counted. Because, yeah, well, that's early November, about third, yeah, third yeah, or something. Because yeah. like, yeah. that, that might change the final result. In 2017, a 
a New, New Zealand First Labor Greens government at that point had a two-seat majority, yeah. special votes, Labor picked up one, the Greens picked up one, National lost two, and they went to having a six-seat majority, which made it a lot more comfortable yeah. to negotiate that deal. So. Yeah, so basically, we're definitely probably waiting until early November, until the specials. We could be waiting as late as November 25th before... Well, we could be. But, but potentially we could be. It'll all depend on the results on the night. If they're, if they're more clear-cut... I mean, and, and then it'll depend on national, you know, does it want to get ahead and form a government, and therefore it means talking to New Zealand first and, and, and you know, basically um, negotiating a, a coalition or a governing arrangement between National Act and New Zealand first. This is a yes or no question. Did you laugh when Winston said he can assure Kiwis of a stable government? No. And I'll tell you <laughs> you why. didn't laugh. Because he has actually been involved. The last two governments he's been involved in were stable. The 2017-20 government, the 2005-2008 government, they were stable. And in fact, if you I look... I didn't ask you to explain it. I if, just wanted a yes or no. Well, I, I think there's a bit of myth-making around the instability. I mean, everyone, everyone, when they talk about the instability of a government involving New Zealand first, will go back to that first MMP government, which fell apart. But that only happened actually after the National MPs rolled Jim Bolger and put Jenny Shipley into place. Up until that point, that government had been pretty stable. The question is, though, that most parties that do deals with New Zealand First kind of probably feel that they're held back from doing the stuff they'd really like to do. All right. Here's another question for you. To next week, here's my prediction and a question. Will we still be none the wiser about who's going to run the government than we are today? Um, here's my prediction. I'm going to have a really straight prediction, unusual for me. By Christmas... Nothing's ever happened. By Christmas, <laughs> Chris will be Prime Minister. <laughs> there, there we go. Well, that is... Uh, <laughs> that's beehive banter, uh, whichever way you voted. Um, I certainly hope that uh, you get your wish, unless, of course, you wish uh, for something that is completely different from what I wish. Uh, but um, that's... Well, actually... Uh, I'm, I'm neutral because I'm a journalist. Oh, no, hang on, I'm not a journalist. You're the journalist. That's right. You're neutral. I'm a broadcaster. I don't have to be neutral. All right. Time up. Better go. See you next time. Thanks for watching or listening. pitted two superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union, against one another. But there was another battle going on, a battle of ideas among economists throughout the Cold War. Victoria University economics professor Alan Bollard has written about that in a new book titled Economists in the Cold War. He joins me now. Why, why write the book in the first place? I mean, what, what interested you in that particular topic? Well, I'd written a book about economists during World War II. There they were mainly worried about things like financing huge military expenditure, working out how to work these governments. We've got civilian and military um, and supply chains, really. And then 1945, it all changed with the end of World War II, but something else was happening. So I start my book at the really the second Potsdam Conference, which is when things started to get rough and it became clear what Stalin's um, objectives were around Europe. And... Initially, um, the Americans had basically intended to 
push Germany and Japan back into an agricultural society so they could never be a, an antagonistic country like that again. But pretty quickly they saw that uh, what was happening was the world was splitting into a bipolar situation with Soviet-led communist bloc on one hand and the American-led capitalist bloc on the other. And so Japan and Germany needed to become capitalist countries. And um, the role of economists changed in a lot of that as well. They were sort of rebuilding. There was a lot of rebuilding to do. But it was also a time of these very big political changes. And they started finding themselves pushed into a, either a left-wing camp or a right-wing camp. And it's a story of ideological conflict, two big blocks, completely decoupled, um, at a sort of si in a silent war against one another, and the economists were there. They had to advance the interests of those, but there were these big ideological battles going on um, beneath the scenes. It was so, pretty so, trust so stuff. So that was kind of was it, but essentially the the battle between, if you like, state controlled economy against market led economies. That's yeah, the... it was Marxism capitalism. It was capital versus labour. It was central planning versus um, free markets. It was. Communism versus democracy in its various different forms. So, you know, you were on one side or the other. It was pretty hard to sit in the middle. There was a lot of political labelling going on. And I picked up on seven international economists and uh, seeing this Cold War through their eyes, which sometimes was quite different mixture of politicians, um, policy makers, um, academics. Um, there were some deep thinkers and there were some right at the sharp end of all of this. And this is so the seven chapters in the book. And each chapter has got one of these economists pitted against a rival on the other side of the divide. And you can see some pretty harsh battles that go on. So how tough did that make it then for those economists to, you know, I mean, so they, they weren't just able to do the, the normal work that you'd expect economists to do if they were, they were seen to represent one side or the other? Yeah, and sometimes which side was a little unclear. I mean, I start off with Henry Dexter White. He was American. Um, he was um, Assistant Treasury Secretary, so a senior policy person. He was the one who led all the um, US stuff at Bretton Woods, which really led to this menu that the US had for leading the free world into the next eras. Um, fought battles with Keynes, who had a different idea of all of that. But he was son of Lithuanian migrants, he was always sympathetic to the Soviets, and it turns out he was quite an active Soviet sympathiser and leaker. So he was letting American stuff go through to the Soviets, and he was there in a situation where I counted about 20 senior um, US administrators um, in the, the Franklin Roosevelt's um, some New Deal agencies who were Soviet spies. And that wasn't that uncommon at that time because the Soviets were seen as winning the war and presenting an interestingly different sort of economy. So there's a lot of spies run through this book. Um, Henry Dexter White in the end, sorry, Harry Dexter White in the end was um, pulled before Congress, House Un-American Activities Committee, uh, under great stress. He testified, he came out, he had a heart attack and he died. A uh, big argument is, to, was he a sympathiser or was he uh, just a wholesale spy? I go on from there and um, look at the story of Polish economist, very good economist called Oskar Langi, who got a Ford Foundation scholarship, went from Warsaw 
into Chicago in the 1930s, wrote about socialism in economic terms that American economists could understand and react to, and they did. So there's a big battle goes on between him and the Austrian economists like von Mises and Hayek, and he's saying, well, a Soviet, a Soviet socialist economy can be efficient um, they're saying there's no way, there's no prices, no markets. And he's saying, yeah, well, no prices, but we can tell if a good is in short supply or oversupplied and adjust accordingly. It's not that hard. Big battle goes on called the economic calculation debate. Later on in his life, computers come in and he says, look, this is what I was talking about. We can just put all these things on computer and have them send the messages yeah. through and get to the same effect. So did, did all of this debate, and particularly, I suppose, on the market side, is, is that what then led through to what was called what the Washington Consensus? Was that? Yeah, I, the um, American Bretton Woods-led deal became the Washington Consensus in the sort of 70, 60s, 70s, 80s, led by the OECD. Still see that today. Um, so a, a very strong line, not entirely ideological, and they, they say, sure, markets don't work for everything, they've got to have some intervention and regulation, that's what we see today. Yeah, so I mean, in that sense, you know, what happened in the Cold War, do we see it reflected in sort of economic theory and the work economists do today? Is, is it well, the, in the Cold War, it was pretty much pushed to one side or the other. So, you know, I'm, I've profiled this crazy, brilliant, genius Hungarian um, mathematician, economist um, John von Neumann. He's sort of on the edges of the of the Oppenheimer movie. He's there in the Manhattan Project. He's working out ways how the um, capitalist economy can work and grow right through this. He's also doing a lot of microeconomic developments like game theory, which says, and he's there in front of Congress. He's a right-wing hawk, this guy. He's there in front of Congress saying, we've got the bomb, they haven't got the bomb. They're going to get the bomb in a couple of years. Um, game theory says, what are we waiting for? So it's pretty you know, serious stuff. And that leads to the mutually assured destruction mad formula, which is there. Then there's others like, Chance, uh, like um, Erhard, Ludwig Erhardt, the German economy minister. Now, he tries to do a, a middle way outcome. And he's there with um, a, a sort of a framework from... University of Freiburg, a German university called Ordo Economics, and he's saying we want more markets, we want unregulated markets as much as possible, but we want a strong social safety net, and that's the sort of German economic miracle view. Well, it goes on from there, and you know, right through the region, there's these economists arguing one way or the other. So, so do you come to any conclusion out of all of this debate, this, this war of ideas? What did we end up with? Was well, I mean, I'm glad I wasn't an economist then because you were pretty much had to be one thing or the other, and it was rough. If you were a socialist economist in the States, not pleasant. If you were a capitalist economist in the Soviet Union, well, you couldn't be. Um, the book ends up in Chile 50 years ago now. Uh, the Allende Socialist Government. He um, knows about Oscar Lange's views about markets, and he gets this... Um, quite unusual, British management consultant Stafford Beer in to build a model of the economy with very basic early economic modelling. He builds a room where these workers are going to sit around and decide how much is produced 
of one thing or another. They're going to do it because he's nationalised all the big business. He's got 350 state-owned enterprises. He links them up with um, telex machines that he finds in the basement of one of these corporatised businesses. And he's using the wires of IT&T. Now, Brent, you and I know that that was the organisation that helped the CIA undermine Allende through the through what happened over those years. And they're sending in every morning, every evening, data about how much they're producing, how much they're selling, green shoes, red shoes, yellow shoes, left side, right side, well, they should go together, um, big or small, men's, women's, whatever. If there's a glut, they produce less. If there's shortages, then they're going to produce more. And these guys sitting around in this room with joysticks on their hands, they're workers, so they can't use use um, keyboards because they've got big hands, and they're saying more of this, less of this, and there's big screens up on the wall. It's an interesting first example. What happens? Um, the military coup. General Pinochet sends soldiers into this control centre. They put bayonets on their rifles. They go through and ritualistically stab all the monitor screens and end this dangerous socialist experiment. Um, and they put in place what is we now know as the Chicago Boys, a bunch of economists who, under Ford and um, Rockefeller Foundation scholarships, were trained at the University of Chicago since the 1960s. And they run a, a completely changed Chilean run, a free market sort of economy. Would that have worked, that system? Um, probably not. A civilian modern um, consumer economy is far too complex for that. But what they were doing in a digitised form is pretty much what big businesses do now in terms of running their supply chains. So interesting sort of outcomes. Alan Bollard, thank you for your time. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive. Thanks for listening.